0: Hello, and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be interviewing Dr. John Goodall about his book titled The Castle, A History, published by Yale University Press in 2022. As you can probably expect from the title, this book presents a vibrant history of the castle in Britain from the early Middle Ages all the way to the present. Um, I found this book absolutely fascinating. Um, because it covers both kind of the castle in general and how it's perceived and built and used, as well as a ton of specific examples um, of actual castles, some of which are not as old as I expected, some of which had different stories than I expected. So I enjoyed this book thoroughly. um, And I think you, the listener, will also learn a lot from this. So John, I'm very pleased to welcome you to the podcast.
1: Miranda, thank you very much for having me. (laughs) It's lovely to be here.
0: Could we please start off with you introducing yourself and explain why you decided to write this book?
1: (laughs) So um, I uh, trained, as it were, as a medievalist, and uh, I worked briefly for English Heritage as a historian. I launched their new guidebook series. I was one of the people involved in doing that more years ago than I cared to think of. must be about... uh, 15, 20 years ago, (laughs) and that was in a way the sort of hook that got me first interested in castles, you know, looking at these buildings, trying to understand them, trying to write guidebooks about them. I like to think of guidebooks as a unique technical literature because they're the only kind of literature that is meant to be read in a particular place. And the challenges of trying to convey what castles, you know, mean in guidebooks was sort of a starting point for my own interest and the technical details of that. Um, I from there I moved to my present job, which is the architectural editor of Country Life, and I work each week producing an article on buildings of different kinds, often country houses, but things that could be built in the distant past and the present. And the point about that, I suppose, is it broadened my interest in architecture, from the foundations in the Middle Ages, which I studied before, and medieval buildings, to buildings of every period. And so this particular project brought together those two interests, in a way. It brought together, on the one hand, technical and archaeological interest in castles, but then allied it with an interest in how they fit in the grand traditions of uh, domestic architecture um, in the British Isles. This book really focuses on on English castles. That's I, I actually cover buildings, as I say, right across the British Isles in Ireland, Scotland, Wales, and England. But it's a sort of convenient way of dealing with something briefly, because all these different areas, of course, have their own traditions of building. And what I wanted to do in effect, therefore, in this book was to try and look at the castle across time, from the distant past to the present day. I also wanted to look at it not just in Literal history, but in literary history, so it contains buildings both you know um, that th- that exist physically and those that have been imagined at different periods of time. And then finally, (laughs) as an architectural historian, I spend all my time necessarily turning the buildings I love into words, and words are necessarily so much less interesting than buildings. But one way, you can never avoid that, but one way I think of blunting your own use of words is to try and turn to the words of different generations of people as they've described castles. So this book, the skeleton of this book, is really a whole series of narratives taken from everything from chronicles to newspaper accounts, poetry, novels of different periods, which describe castles through other people's eyes. It's about how people in the distant past have perceived these things or um, uh, and how they presented them. So it's a, basically a, a long chronology with a whole series of anecdotes which I interpret and explain and relate in the words of the person um, who ha- has, has presented them. And I hoped in that way that I could do something in short that was you know rooted in one side in uh, one part in rigorous architectural history but also rooted in many voices of the past and also took a very broad view of a subject that commands still enormous popular interest so it's also meant to be a popular and accessible book and writing a history i suppose in a slightly different way
0: mm. well that's a very helpful introduction um to kind of what brought you to this and also a really lovely summary of the book, um, not just in its content, but also the way it conveys that content, um, which I'd love to ask you about in a minute. But before that, given, um, as you've just described, the massive kind of sweep of the book in time, in geography, um, could we first start off with just clarifying, how do we define the term castle?
1: Yes, this w- wonderful old chestnut. The, the book, I suppose, starts uh, you know from the point of view uh, that it has become conventional to define the castle as the residence of a nobleman that is defensible. And that conventional description is, in fact, I think perfectly accurate of buildings, uh, uh, castle buildings in the early Middle Ages in England. But it becomes very complicated in the late, even, even by the 13th century, I think it becomes complicated because it's involved scholars in discussions of whether fortifications function. And that's a very subjective and difficult thing to judge. <laughs> um, and my own preferred way of approaching this problem, therefore, is to say that um, if people call things a castle, it's not the responsibility of historians to tell them why they got it wrong. It's the responsibility of historians to explain what they meant. And I think obviously the word castle has been very widely applied in, in, in it to buildings in England through long periods of time. And what I've settled for is the definition of a castle as a building made magnificent through the trappings of fortification. So the residence of a nobleman made magnificent through the trappings of fortification. And in in changing it in th- the definition from the conventional one in this way, I think we sidestep, first of all, a huge amount of very subjective discussion about whether a particular fortification actually works, and therefore whether it's a real castle, in inverted commas, or or, or by implication a fake one. But also it's, it's possible to look at a much wider spectrum of buildings than those that are constructed in the 11th and 12th centuries, where clearly defence is a very important element. But even in those buildings, I would say, um you know this architecture has never been purely functional it's always had a demonstrative quality and i think that that's actually you know really uh, the most important Quality of the castle; it is a demonstrative building, and uh, so that's uh, ultimately that's what I've, I plumb for is, is the definition of a castle that is is a building, a, a noble's residence that uses the trappings of fortification, battlements, towers, turrets to demonstrative effect of, as an expression of social identity, but also you know which can can sometimes function as uh, defensible buildings. And one of the themes, of course, that's picked up in the book is that um it can be quite shocking to discover how late people were still building castles with a defensive function sometimes. You know, it, it, it can be quite remarkable to be reminded of 19th century buildings that are, you know, that they're not meant to withstand attacks from armies, but they're certainly intended to withstand attacks from mobs. Um, so, you know, this this is, this is the de- defence never quite vanishes, but I mean, I think it's certainly a thing of diminishing importance, and this book is trying to set the, the specific issue of defence to one side without denying its importance but saying that there's something even more profound that identifies a castle today and of course you know the irony is that they are instantaneously recognisable to us as a building type um you know whether or not you're professionally interested in the subject i think we all know what castles are inwardly
0: (laughs) Mm. which in a lot of ways means that defining it is even trickier um because we do have kind of built-in connotations and assumptions um that makes someone, you know, someone like you, it's harder then to come up with a definition because there's already so many out there. Uh, So thank you for sort of providing us with that baseline um, to understand the rest of this. Uh, The other kind of foundational question I wanted to ask sort of comes back to something you were mentioning earlier around kind of um, the goals of the book, not just purely being about um, kind of, I don't know a textbook going along with you know year by year what's happening but the idea of kind of unearthing voices from the past um and putting them kind of in conversation with each other and the book does in a lot of ways work chronologically but you also do organize it um in other ways and I was wondering if you could sort of tell us a little bit about kind of how you group castles together how you organize and how you think about them um as you are structuring the book well I suppose as I
1: was structuring the book, what I was really trying to do first and foremost was create a chronology. I wanted to have uh, stories that that talked about castles from you know the early middle ages right through to the present day um and you know without giving you know giving anything away you know the one fir- the, the first um quotations in the book is from, in fact from Caesar's Gallic Wars and the last is a discussion of the Disney castle because I suppose that's another point that you know we're still creating castles it's not as though they've they've vanished um, so that, that I was trying to find things that furnished um, a broad chronology and that's actually always agonizing because that there were all sorts of things that I would have loved to have included, but they fell too close to other things that I thought were more important. <laughs> and that was a slightly agonising series of choices when I was trying to really whittle things down. You know, there are some periods of time where narratives are packed with references to castles, and there are other periods of time where you have to seek out references to castles. So that was the main you know, imperative, I suppose, in, in structuring the book was trying to um, create a balance of, in time to make it clear what the sweep of the book actually was, get, you know, what, it, what the, the breadth of the subject and what it was covering. Um, I mean, I also um, think that buildings are one of the ways in which we get closer to the physical experience, the reality of the past than anywhere else. I mean, I think when we confront paintings, open manuscripts, or we visit buildings, we are brought face to face with the visual world, in as far as we can be, that people in the past have known and experienced. And so, I wanted not only to incorporate within the book quotations from, you know, from accounts of castles, but I thought it was also important at certain points to use images of castles or photographs of existing buildings to illustrate the narrative. So they also fall into that overarching chronology, you know, images of castles at different periods of time. Um, And it's not that I think that... uh, images are separate, quite the contrary, but I, I was almost trying to cast images and real buildings as texts, just as the other things were as texts that you could gloss and analyse. I think it's really important that you try and stop and and gloss and text what you see in images and in buildings that you, you visit. So those I suppose were the were, were the, the the two groups of things. And as as we've as I've said already, you know, I, I was very conscious that I wanted to cover Imaginary buildings, as well as real ones, literary castles, as you know, uh, 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 and also one of the things that I think has been very important in the story of the castle, and is again, I think, lives in in the Disney castle, for example, is the castle as a as an, uh, a sort of foundation of myth and fantasy. Castles very early on in English history become associated with the foundational legends of Britain, figures such as King Arthur. And I think it's very important that um, that sort of fictional character of history is represented as well in a history of the castle. It's really, really significant. I don't think we always... You know, When I was writing guidebooks for English heritage, I used to think that there was a thing called, you know, the real history of a site <laughs> and then all these other things, that, all these other stories that people invented about castles uh, or, or, or monasteries and buildings. Now it's not that I, I don't think that that, that is a real distinction. I think, you know, there's history as invention and there is history as, you know, factually um, related, but sometimes I notice that the distinction between them is not as clear as I used to think. <laughs> um, uh, and um, I think also, it, so I I suppose I, I feel sensitized to the, to the reality that when people think things about buildings, those things can seem real to them. I mean, people in the, from the 13th century thought that uh, the Tower of London was built by Julius Caesar. And if you're going to understand the Tower of London, in through their eyes you need to make that you need to make their mistake (laughs) you know we now know that it's not a roman building but that doesn't mean that people who thought it you can't understand people who thought it was a roman building if you insist on so in some way and just discounting their perception of it you need to make the same mistakes as the past if you're going to understand the past i think
0: I think that that makes a lot of sense, especially kind of put in the context of um, understanding and interpreting images as well. Um, Because of course, photography is not around for a lot of the history of the castle. And so a lot of the images in the book are um, sketches or are kind of other methods of documenting images. And that, in a lot of ways, tells us uh, more about what people thought about castles necessarily than kind of an accurate architectural rendering of um, sort of a military fortification. So uh, I think kind of all this goes together in sort of, helping us understand uh kind of the castle in and of itself but also like the history and the way people have talked about and perceived castles um so i'd love to kind of i mean you had to write a proper chronology uh, looking at really all the castles um i do not have that burden so i am going to explicitly essentially cherry pick through the chronology that the book provides um, in the interest of time we obviously can't go into all of it So I'm going to pick bits of this history to ask you to tell us a little bit more about. Um, And kind of the obvious place to start is, of course, the Norman Conquest. So traditionally, we perhaps understand that castles kind of come to England through the Norman Conquest. That's where the English and then the British castle comes from. To what extent is that actually true?
1: Yes, well, this is another really complex issue, and it comes down in part to the question of, you know, what do we mean by the word castle? How is the word castle actually used? Um, I think it's. I think the basic premise that the castle is a building type introduced to England at the Norman Conquest is correct, but it is important to acknowledge that there are complications to it. One of those complications is that um, there are Normans who are brought to England before. The conquest happens. Edward the Confessor, the last Anglo-Saxon king of England, is uh, of course spends some of his life in exile in Normandy, and he brings back to England when he becomes king, um, all kinds of things that savor of um the sort of Norman cultural revolution. And one of those, of course, famously not in the world of castles at all, is his rebuilding of Westminster Abbey, which is in this new uh, style, uh, which is uh, informed by uh, the Romanesque Roman architecture. Uh, in, uh, 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 and is effectively a building of Norman inspiration before the Norman conquest. So one complication, in other words, is that there are Normans around and there are a few, a handful of castles constructed by foreigners in England before uh, the, the Norman conquest itself. But it's also true to say that the Anglo-Saxon nobility do live in buildings that are defensible and the, the name of them, the burgheat, which literally means the you know the the, the gateway to the enclosure. <laughs> this um, actually um, is a building type that's clearly defensible. And the Anglo Saxons, after all, you know, have long been building fortifications against the Vikings, apart from anything else. Um, so th- there are fortifications in England, and they do occur sometimes around residences. I use in the book the example of Bambra. Um the what we're told by um the venerable Bede is that this citadel but we're named after Beba, the Queen Beba of Venicia Beba's burr. And um there is a siege described um by Bede when uh, the king of Mercia, Pender, uh, tries to uh, destroy the the fortifications by creating an enormous bonfire. <laughs> um now uh what's sort of fascinating about this um early description of this fortified site which sounds like a citadel of some kind is that um it's you know it it it, it doesn't really conform to what we think of there's a castle built there after the conquest of course but it, it, you know it long precedes um castle building It's odd, however, that the siege that Pender undertakes, you know, it really has none of the qualities of a siege that you would read in the later Middle Ages. You know, there aren't catapults or anything like that. It's like that. It's it's tremendously passive. You know, Pender basically pulls down all the neighbouring houses, stacks them up to form a bonfire, waits until waits until the wind is in the right direction, and sets fire to them. Um, and this. This is not the stuff of sieges that we're familiar with. And I think herein lies one of the most interesting distinctions between sort of pre- and post-Norman conquest castles, if you want to call them all that, is that before the Norman conquest... There are fortifications and there are residences that are fortified, but they don't really turn up very often in narratives, of of, of historical narratives, and they certainly aren't often the objects of sieges. But after the Norman Conquest, this building type turns up absolutely everywhere. You know, the narratives and chronicles of the period are full of references to castles, and they're being besieged so much more actively. They're, They're, you know, elements in warfare, um, and that's not just a matter of the the, the 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 increased surviving evidence. It really does seem to be a reflection of the way in which they're being used as tools in war. So, in other words, there is a very complex history. And uh, and as a final, actually, sorry, the final thing I should say is that just to confuse matters even further, that the. Um, English tradition of noblemen's residences, the Anglo-Saxon tradition, does seem to feed into Norman castle building in architectural terms. So we know that an English noble residence before the conquest often has a great hall, which is where feudal Jews, you know, that's the sort of focus of a a manor, is a hall, a building, and that these um, fortified houses, these bergites, have uh, prominent gatehouses, And it is striking that in England, when the Normans build, they often build castles with gatehouses of a kind and scale you never see in continental Europe. And they also construct halls on a scale and in a form that you don't see elsewhere um, in France. So it's as though English traditions and English ideas permeate um, the castle building tradition of the post-conquest period. So there are really complex relationships between them. Uh, but uh, I think it is still fair to say that the Norman Conquest does really constitute a new beginning.
0: Mm. I, I think the idea of permeating is very interesting. And as as of course the book goes on, um, there's a lot of examples, particularly around the halls of castles and kind of what they're used for um, and what we think they're used for later on. Um, as you said, sort of thinking the Tower of London was built by Caesar. Um, historical assumptions about what has happened in castles is not always correct um, but that can be really interesting especially around kind of big theatrical spaces in a way and kind of well what would they have looked like um so i think it's really interesting to kind of think about like where does the idea of a hall come from um so thank you for kind of explaining the that it's as you said it's complex it's not quite as simple as the myth uh, we may be used to so i'd love to turn then to the sort of the other group of people involved, right? We, we, we've talked about it as noblemen's residences, but of course they're not the only people um, living in a castle, living near castles, um, encountering castles, particularly in this kind of early period, you know, before we can talk about maybe sort of um, mass literacy or uh, pamphlets, and certainly long before we can talk about sort of leisure travel. Um, what did ordinary people, think of castles respond to them the view of them the building of them we've talked about for four years but like what did normal everyday people think
1: yes well i i I think this is a really important point to make and one of the things that i find when i found that this idea of using other people's voices is very helpful because for some people, of course, castles are home. For some people, they're places that, you know, they can live out grand lives. But there's, as you say, there are other people for whom castles are places where justice is is um meted out or they can be seen, I mean, throughout the Middle Ages too, as tools of tyranny. And, I mean, I think that's true from the Norman conquest onwards, you know, that this sense that when the Normans start building castles in England, this is not some, you know, This is not a sort of byproduct of conquest. This is actually completely fundamental to the process. You're forcing people to come off the land to build fortifications for you. It's um, really brutal. And um, uh, that, you know, we're told by the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, you know, that it's it's oppressive, it's it's tyrannous, uh, that people are being forced to work on castles, and that theme of the castle as a place of tyranny and of, of, of threatening a threatening building. Of course, um, it, you know, it. it one, another anecdote I tell in in, in in the book is about Henry III's rebuilding of the Tower of London. Oh. With um, sorry, I, uh, someone. <laughs> <laughs> My daughter coming into the room. Um, uh, Henry III Third building the Tower of London, and um, uh, the uh, the 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 citizens of London being terrified by um, th- you know by the reality of having this castle being built beside them. They think it's going to be used to uh, tyrannise over them. And there's this wonderful story of uh, Thomas Beckett, of course, the Archbishop of Canterbury, who is always who's a, born a Londoner and is always a supporter of the citizens of London, and um, who knocks in a dream is seen to knock down the castle walls of the Tower of London. And this happens on two consecutive occasions, exactly a year apart. And amazingly, I think people long thought that this was just a sort of medieval myth. But during excavations at the Tower of London, it turned out that there really were fortifications being built by Edward III that fell down twice. Um, uh, (laughs) So this story is suddenly linked, you know, to to, to, um, archaeology. It's rather fascinating. And in the book itself, of course, I go on to talk about castles and their perception as places of tyranny i i cite a a passage from uh, john bunyan's pilgrims progress uh, which uh, illustrates again um uh, the 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 sole Christian um, and hopeful, his companion, who are on this uh, uh, this um, metaphorical journey to heaven, are imprisoned uh, in 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 a castle. And and I tell that anecdote. And this is again a story of of tyranny. So this is where the other side uh, to 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 the castle from the, the setting of grand life. And there are also, um, I should say, you know, uh, references to uh, castles as seats of judicial authority, and the rather wonderful story of a, 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 a rather sad story of a lady who's killed by a kettle, um, c- killed by a stone that falls out of a, um, a, a, a out of a castle in um, in in on the, in Wales, and the person who throws the stone or who dislodges the stone is is um, the castle constable of Montgomery Castle, and is um, and and the law case brought by this woman's daughter is heard within the walls of the castle in which her mother was killed. Again, reminder of the, the judicial function of these buildings.
0: Mm. Thank you for explaining kind of the range of um, interactions and reactions. And of course that many of those can be kind of all experienced by the same person, right? It could be a place of work. That also becomes a place of justice that maybe starts off or becomes a place of tyranny and, um, you know that it's all sort of interconnected and there's not just one way to look at it so i'm really uh, thank you for kind of explaining that to us and of course for threading that throughout the book um not just in the kind of early medieval stuff um so it is really something that is present throughout which is helpful because ordinary people were present throughout despite what we may tend to think about in terms of castles um and i, I I'd, I'd like to move then to kind of my next question, uh, which is, I suppose, still in the realm, I guess, of myth busting, really, um, which is the idea of something called a license to crenellate. What was that um, in actual fact?
1: So this is, yes, this is a very complicated thing. I mean, in the nineteenth century, where people were uh, people were obsessed by the idea, not obsessed. They they regarded castles as a decentralizing force on the life of the realm because if you owned a castle and you resist you could with you could resist the king and withdraw into your castle and you know live independently and so it was believed that all castles had to be licensed when the crown was strong enough the the crown insisted on licensing all castles and people began to look through the documentary material to identify a category of document that they described after a phrase that often appears in licenses to build fortifications as a license to crenellate now licenses to crenellate so-called are issued between that they appear in the you know in in, in documentation issued by the Chancery um, and and also by certain pa- Palatine powers princely powers in England from the 12th century onwards but in fact um, they are not they're not a natural category they're sort of a selected category it's what historians have chosen to bring together and the main group of them belong to a particular period of time and follow a particular formula that often allows people to build stone walls and erect crenellations on them around their residences now um when it was believed that the king needed to control his realm by restricting the construction of fortifications, it was thought that a licensed grenate was a sort of gracious, you know, royal gift. But it's quite clear now that m- m- many of the licensed grenates that were issued were in fact really being issued like licenses for anything else. You went to the Chancery and you paid a fine sum of money, and they would write a, a license for you. Um, according to whatever you'd asked for, if you provided enough money. And so, what in fact licenses to really are is not the king allowing people to build castles, and by limiting the construction of castles, organising and maintaining law and order in the realm, they're in fact documents issued by the Royal Chancery in response to people who want to build castles as a sign that they are of the requisite status, a nobleman, to live in a castle. They're a sort of passport to social status. And they are often also issued with other rights and privileges. Markets, for example, the right to hold markets, or another um, uh, uh, also rights to create parks for the aristocratic privilege of hunting. Uh, So again, you know, they are they are much more sort of passports to social status than anything else. And of course the irony about licenses to crenellate is not only are they issued over a limited period of time I mean those that have been identified spread really between the late 12th and uh, the the very latest ones are the early 17th century but the point is that lots and lots of people build things that they call castles, which don't have any licenses to crenellate associated with them at all. Noblemen, for example, very, very rarely bothered to get a license to crenellate, and they tend to live in castles without these ever being issued, um, and build new castles without them being issued. So the license to has gone from being a sort of indication that the king is ruling effectively and, and controlling his baronies, his barons, to being really... Uh, you know, passports to status and privilege. Mm.
0: Speaking of the king controlling um, baronies and castles, I'd love to ask about how castles were impacted by the English Civil War. Yes, well, the, the
1: the English Civil War is a sort of, in 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 architectural terms, architectural historical terms, is is a major sort of caesura in 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 the history of of, of English building. It's a counterpart, a secular counterpart really to the dissolution of the monasteries in for 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 one thing, until the Civil War, there are lots of great medieval castles that, in one way or another, have remained major residences since time immemorial. They've just kind of kept on going, and at the Civil War, those buildings, some of them are obviously fortified with garrisons um often along with towns I mean I think I should say that we tend to read about Civil War sieges of castles and we think of the castles themselves as being surrounded but I think the narratives that I've read often imply that the what the garrisons occupy much bigger sites than the castles alone often the towns as well are enclosed by fortifications so the castle is sort of an element of the defences so some of these castles anyway in the Civil War play an active role in the fighting um, but in the aftermath of the fighting, huge numbers of them are destroyed by act of parliament. And it's really interesting that owners of these buildings often you know, are, are content to see castles demolished because they're understood somehow to be a potential cause for... Uh, the, the the fighting per being perpetuated. You know, if you can have a small force of people and you can get into a castle and then resist um, central authority. So quite a lot of people are willing to see castle defences damaged or slighted so that the castle can no longer ef- effectively operate as a place of defence. Now, I think it's important to say that you know, again, the conventional view is that castles are very effective until gunpowder is developed. The sieges of the Civil War demonstrate that plenty of medieval castles constructed long before the use of gunpowder were incredibly effective as places of defence, and even castles that were not, even buildings that weren't really designed um, as uh, defensible places. Um, So, you know uh, uh, some medieval buildings you know were proved incredibly strong in the face even of uh, even of gunpowder but it's also true that you know th- the sieges that took place very often in the English civil war uh, until you got an artillery train to a particular castle it could he- hold that almost indefinitely and it's really the artillery that eventually subdues most castles um and uh so you know what you have in the civil war is that castles become centres of defence, once again, some of them are ruins, some of them are genuinely, you know, occupied places. Basing House, for example, one of the great lost buildings of um, Tudor, England, probably, um, is, is of course, the subject of a very celebrated and um, bitter and cruelly concluded siege, brutally concluded siege. Um, uh, uh, But Uh, Huge numbers of these buildings after the fighting are then deliberately destroyed. And in that destruction, there is a complete change in in the direction of English domestic, grand English domestic architecture. When the restoration comes, you know, there are lots of people who have been in exile abroad and have seen continental taste baroque palaces and so on and so forth they don't they come back and they find their ancestral homes in ruins and they don't particularly want to rebuild them and they build something completely different as a consequence so the civil war is sort of hugely important it's a moment where buildings the, the, the castles which have for very very long periods of time been developed generation after generation with fashionable new additions and basically parked and then demolished and then there's a new beginning and that, you know, in that sense, the restoration, to speak in general terms, really is a restoration in all kinds of ways. But it's more than a restoration. It's it's almost a new departure. It's a moment where uh, the English nobility really start living completely differently in totally new buildings almost overnight. I mean, there's a massive change that takes place. And famously, even a castle such as Windsor, you know, this great emblem of royal authority, It very, very narrowly escapes demolition. The parks associated with it are partitioned up. And at the restoration, you know, it's all put back together. But it takes a little bit of time. Charles II only kind of returns to Windsor properly when he uh, feels threatened by London mobs. And he moves to Windsor as a place of security and it's refashioned as a great baroque palace. Uh, It never loses its title as being a castle. You know, I don't think, again, it's, it's, it's not necessarily a building that would Serve in a in a major campaign against armies, but it is a security against mobs, and he definitely uses it in
0: that way so given that there's now been this big change in how the nobility kind of sees castles and the utility of castles um how are castles uh then impacted by the Gothic revival?
1: Well, the Gothic revival of course, revives people's interests in castles in 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 all kinds of you know quite complex ways. One of them again is the Gothic novel, and this is to do again with the idea of castles as places of tyranny, and that is a romantic perception of them, informed famously by, um, uh, you know, uh, Horace Walpole's um, uh, uh, first Gothic novel, *The Castle of Otranto*. But there is another side to the um, uh, to the uh, revi- the Gothic revival, and that's a sort of reinvigoration in well, it's a return of interest in the Middle Ages as a living and breathing uh, entity, sort of history as something that we can experience and imagine, reimagine in our mind's eye. An absolutely crucial um, figure in this process is Walter Scott, the novelist, and his novels which turn castles and historic you know, environments into um, places where People live, love, and die, and you know the enormous popularity that his novels enjoyed. Again, in a romantic sense, they made castles seem to live again, and th- there were circles who, you know, largely fired by the novels of Walter Scott and others, you know, in, in, in uh, you know th- all, all the things that sort of associated with that romantic revival. Um, but may people want to revive? the social orders and the uh, and the architecture of of the middle ages i mean some people idealized this in the most extraordinary way and saw in the middle ages a perfect society or a better society than the one in which they inhabited so the gothic revival Not only, I mean, in many ways, I think we're familiar with the Gothic revival in church buildings and the, the restoration of cathedrals and so on and so forth in the 19th century. But it also has this other side where people begin to build castles and they don't even only... Build castles. I mean, they begin to dress up in medieval costume. There, um, you know, Queen Victoria uh, uh, early in her reign has a celebrated, a uh, 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 fancy dress cost uh, ball, effectively, which she she turns up as Philippa of Hanolts to uh, Alberts Edward the Third. Um, you know, all and they're put. Their portrait is painted in these elaborate costumes, and everybody comes in medievalizing costumes. And w- one of the episodes I talk about in the book is a description of the so called Eglinton Tournament, which is um, a, 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 a mock tournament, well, not a mock tournament, it's a tournament <laughs> in which um, lots of particularly young Tory sympathizing. Noblemen get together in the lowlands of Scotland, and they have a tournament to celebrate the coronation of the queen, which they think has been done in a very sort of cheapskate way. And so they have a, a medi- they literally revive the Middle Ages for a few days. The most famous thing about the Eglinton Tournament is on the first day it poured with rain and absolutely ruined uh, the first day of the event. But in fact, huge numbers of people turned up um, to this um, uh, to this uh, uh, tournament, and in the subsequent days, um, it. You know, it, it it there were lots of jousting, lots of jousting and feasting and 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 and, and feats of martial arms and so on and so forth. Um, and the people who turn up are a really extraordinary list of the great and the good um, in. Europe, in European terms, Napoleon III, for example, who goes on to restore castles such as Pierrefonds in in France, is one of the people there, um, and he takes part in the tournament. and And so there there are really very significant figures who go on to uh, restore castles and build castles. It Really, fire it, it fires their imagination. This idea that the Middle Ages is a period that you can recreate, and the idea of chivalry. And um, I mean, it's, it's a subject that's been beautifully written about both by um Mark Girard, and more recently by Rosemary Hill in her more recent book about, you know, Romantic, the Romantic, the Romantic period of history, uh, the, the sort of, uh, antiquarianism, not as a dry study, but as somehow a full-bodied attempt to imagine the past and relive the past. Sometimes,
0: mm. but this is still, in a lot of ways, um, quite a step from. What we currently have in sort of, sort of um, english heritage national trust sort of things of preserving uh, historically accurately or preserving kind of in full um, these historical sites and and we can kind of almost see that progression in the answers you've already said right at first it's about building up in response to uh, military events in response to kind of social status uh, then it's a change from the restoration of wait there are other options then it's this revival um of kind of oh we could do that let's build things like it or as if um but now we have a very sort of different sense in some ways of kind of combining in some sense this fancy dress but also with kind of preserving the historical a- accuracy um how do we end up with this sort of idea of um preserving castles how did we kind of come to think of that as a thing um and yeah how how do, how do we come to think of that as a thing that we do now
1: well it is in a way a product of exactly the same thing i mean i think the, the idea that we preserve monuments as we do is partly born of people's changing attitudes to churches and things you know they they the, the, these the, the, there's an belief in the authenticity of the original material and the idea that you need to preserve um the original because it has authenticity and it brings you back to the past i mean i think that you know it is fascinating because the whole our whole treatment of buildings is 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 so it involves tensions between so many different interests i mean there is a, a, you know, particularly i suppose english heritage historically was very concerned that the ruins of buildings should be presented as texts of history this is an idea that's first you know being expressed in the late 19th century that the original material is 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 just like a text and that if it's properly presented um it, you can read it as another historical document of the past and in the early 20th century particularly when uh, um the ministry of works as it then was was taking lots of buildings into its care what it would do is it would find a building and then it would take away all the things that it thought of as accretions to its central history let's say if it's a monastery you clear the site you get rid of everything that's post-medieval because it's not to do with the monastery and then you present these ruins now the problem with that is that um you know, it creates very arid (laughs) remains, and ruins don't maintain themselves. In more recent years, there's been a great interest in trying to make ruins and history live again, and this is again taking us back to the idea of the Romantic past, the idea that you can go to a place and imagine what life was like there. Uh, It's a very, in many ways, a very 19th century sensibility, and so, um, you know, national institutions, including Historic Scotland and English Heritage, have attempted reconstructions of historic Interiors. Um, and those are, you know, they're completely fascinating, but they're also deeply problematic because often they reconstruct historic interiors in ways that nobody in history would recognize them because they are again demonstrative reconstructions of the past rather than, you know, real or you know, real living reconstructions of the past. But of course, you know, in some cases, if you go to historical palaces or something, you can go into reconstructed rooms and there will be people dressed in period costume to explain the contents of those rooms. Seems to me in its own terms a a very successful thing to do. there are, of course, another group of buildings which are still lived in castles that still have families occupying them. I mean, it's uh, I, I think that we tend to forget that in England, these things all do live side by side. Um, and I think it's a curiosity, actually, in, in one way of some of the recent problems um facing you know heritage organisations as they try and interpret the past in 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 the face of debates about you know black lives matter and slavery and things is that um private families were some of the first you know families living in stately homes and in castles were some of the first to um pioneer studies into their families connections with the slave trade, for example. Somewhere like Lowther, for example, was you know looking into this long before, um, or, or Harwood, long before any institutions turned their attention to it. And the curious thing is, even now, families, I think, are able to deal with difficult pasts in mu- with much more kind of conviction than institutions institutions just seem to be terrified by them because they don't know where to look or how to justify it families seem to have no problem in saying yes we had you know my great 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 grandfather was a completely awful person and did these terrible things and of course i wouldn't do that now but it's just part of it's part of my family's history whereas institutions say that the great great grandfather of the you know present owner or the you know the present the, pre, the, the the occupant in the early late Nineteenth century was was awful, and therefore we sort of can't even present them anymore. So I think there are interesting ways in which institutions and and family histories can sort of learn from one another. Um, and um, I, I think that, that that full spread of material is really fascinating. That we have houses or you know, castles that are ruins, castles that are still occupied, castles that are recreations. They all exist in a very very rich um, combination of uh, of material. I think.
0: Definitely, very much so, and um, particularly as they all uh, can often be in like similar geographies. So you can get to kind of a ruin and a currently occupied castle and a sort of restored place like oh, quite easily, often, um, and are very much geographically in conversation with each other. Um, so it would make sense to kind of have more conversation and dialogue between them as well. Um, but as we come toward sort to the end of it, um, I'm wondering if I can just ask you to give us a little bit more detail on something you briefly mentioned around kind of uh, the reconstruction of the interiors being um, problematic. And you've just outlined really helpfully kind of how discussions about sort of nasty people in the past um, are being had in different ways, some more productive than others. But I'm wondering if you can maybe um, help us understand perhaps through an example, kind of this idea of where um, and why we might want to be critical about um, historically constructed interiors and how that may not actually be as representative as it sounds like? Well, I suppose,
1: you know, it's very difficult discussing historically reconstructed interiors because I think there's always a conflation of arguments. One is about the quality of the scholarship and the quality of the craftsmanship that underpins the recreation of a period apartment. And the other (laughs) is the question of whether it's actually accurate, whether it actually shows anything that we know about. Now, it seems to me that in recent years there have been lots of really exemplary um projects in terms of academic research and craftsmanship and i mean i could name let's say stirling castle in scotland or you know the restoration of the 12th century rooms in dover castle or or historic royal palaces work at uh, in the tower of london but i think in all those different cases <laughs> the problem is that it doesn't if you go in there with a sort of critical mind and say is this actually a path that ever existed? You would be very hard pressed to answer yes to that question, and there are little details I think that you know that that that, that underline um, th- that point. I mean, one of the most obvious ones is that English kings and queens, historically and noblemen, were very, very rich and powerful people. Um, they possessed objects of enormous value in their own societies. Now we simply don't have when reconstructing the rooms of in the keep at Dover you know english heritage doesn't have the money of henry the it can't re- recreate the kinds of objects that he would have possessed and used and it certainly couldn't put them on public display just for the reasons of their bullion value alone so you know you can reconstruct those apartments to the very highest standards of academic you know, work and and to very high standards of craftsmanship, recreating beds and hangings and textiles and fabrics. But, you know, it it still, in a way, I don't think necessarily gives a flavour of what it would have been like actually to be in the presence of Henry II in the Keep in Dover. And there are also, I think, in, in, in the process of these reconstructions, I think they telescope time and often involve little, you know, changes that 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 are are important so for example again i'm not having it in for dover because i mean i very much enjoy it but you know the, the you know there is no evidence that the keep at dover ever had 12th century fireplaces there were fireplaces created there in the 15th century and those are the fireplaces that are now used in the display of the 12th century rooms well That's fine, but it's actually really interesting that there aren't any fireplaces in Dover in the 12th century. And um, added to which by presenting the rooms in the 12th century, you're compressing or, or sort of effacing the fact that the keep at Dover has actually been used as a royal palace right the way through the Middle Ages. It's remodelled by Edward IV in the you know, in the 1470s. It's also then used by Henry VIII as a palace. It's also the place where Charles I first meets his bride in the 17th century when it's reworked as a palace. And it then has a history and all kinds of other things into the twentieth uh, into the twentieth century, so when you take this back just to one period of time, it seems to me you're also denying the depths of history that that building represents. So I think that's quite confusing in a way, um, and it also ignores all kinds of you know physical things within the building that have you know changed over that time. So I think it's it's a really complicated tightrope trying to reconstruct things. You know, convincingly, and uh, it has, of course, a very long history. I mean, the Marquis of Bute was doing this kind of thing at Cardiff and Castelcoch in 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 the in the mid nineteenth century. I mean, it's not a new phenomenon. Um, uh, it, it, so it, it's a, it's complicated. As I say, I think that we run the risk often of constructing historic interiors in inverted commas <laughs> that no person in history would recognise. Um, it's so it it, it it's difficult. It's worthwhile too. I mean, I think you only learn. I, I don't want to sound down about it entirely because I think it's a very, it, it's a process full of really interesting insights when you uh, try and reconstruct rooms in the past. But it's a very difficult thing to do p- successfully, and always, always, it seems to me they date very fast. They look their time very, very, very quickly, and that's true of nineteenth-century reconstructions of buildings. But it will be true of 20th and 21st century reconstructions too. you'll just go in there and you'll immediately know when it was done.
0: Well I think that's um, in many ways a really interesting kind of encapsulation of a lot of what the book does is deal with an incredibly complex um, topic that has a lot of different facets and but lays it out clearly not to reduce the complexity but to make that complexity understandable Um, without kind of saying there's one right answer. So um, I think that was, that's a lovely place to kind of wrap up um, with that kind of thing that helps us understand today as we're encountering some of these places, what we might want to be thinking about, um, and sort of end with that lovely taste of sort of how the book deals with these complex issues. Um, But before I let you go, I was wondering if you might be able to share with us, uh, now that the book is published, what you might be working on now or next?
1: Gosh, well, I, I I'm working for a weekly magazine. I'm just always working on lots and lots of different things. So it's a slightly overwhelming uh, uh question. I mean, I I've um uh, absolutely on my desk at the present moment is a pair of articles on Hocum Hall in Norfolk. But I mean, the um uh, w- w- I suppose um. I, I do have plans for uh, a, another book and I mean one thing I would be very interested in trying to do is uh, a, a, a history of um, of maybe uh, the perpendicular style of architecture late Gothic um, architecture in England um, it's a subject that is I think of uh, of great in interest at the present moment and has I've even seen newspaper articles on it recently um, and it's not a very popular um, area of study uh, but I, I, I haven't really formulated what I might do but I, it is something it would be of interest to me.
0: Fair enough. Uh, Well, best of luck with that and with your weekly articles. Um, And in the meantime, while you're off doing all of that, listeners can read the book we've been discussing, which as a reminder is titled The Castle, A History, published by Yale University Press in 2022. Uh, Dr. John Goodall, thank you so much for being on the podcast.
1: Thank you, Miranda. That's very kind.